Welcome this morning, everybody. We, we, we made it through this week. You know, I am exhausted but happy to be here with everybody. I'm glad that we have heat in this building. I'm glad that this building is dry. I think today is one of those days when we get together and we remember how good God is, and that's what we kind of want to do today. But before we get into that, let me, let me say a couple things. One, this week's been hard on our community and our state, and so if you know someone or if you are in need of help, this is a place where you can find it. And I mean that from a spiritual sense, obviously, from an emotional sense, but also from a physical sense. We have a deacon team, and we have a needs team, and we have a benevolence fund. So if things flooded and you need help, please contact us. You can email needs at crossroadsbible.org. You can email our deacon board. You can email me or any other awkward picture you see on that website, all right? You just find it, and you shoot us an email, and we want to dive into your pain and help you, because that's what Jesus did for us. So this morning, as we start, we always start with prayer. We're going to now. We're going to pray that God takes away the spirit of criticalness that we enter into because of the culture that we live in. We're going to pray that the Spirit speaks to us as we open some text. We're going to pray for our community and our neighbors and our friends and family that went through a tough week that might need some help, that we can be people that step into that pain. So I'll guide us through the prayer. I'll ask that you spend some time praying to yourself, and then I'll wrap it up at the end. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here on a Sunday morning when we didn't a week ago because of the weather, but we can today and remember how good you are. I'm thankful that we made it through a cold and uh, electric-less week last week. I'm thankful that in the middle of all the chaos, it's the theme of this year, in the middle of all the chaos, our God is constant. So today, as we enter into this time of worship and in reflection on the goodness of God, let's pray for those who need to be reminded of the goodness of God. We, we pray for people in our community that need help, that have lost power and maybe have lost houses or parts of their houses. We pray that you help us meet needs, that people see the goodness of God through physical acts of generosity. So just take a minute, if you're willing to, and just pray for someone you know that might have a need right now. Pray that we might be a church that meets needs in our community like God met our needs in Jesus. And pray this morning as we open the scriptures, the Holy Spirit might, might speak to your spirit. As we go through some stories of Jesus in Matthew 8, that God might teach us about his character, and that might lead us into an understanding that helps our day-to-day of the goodness of God in our world. That we might see it, that we might feel it, that we might recognize it, that it might impact how we live, because that's what it means to be a disciple. Pray that the Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. God, teach us, guide us, and encourage us as we open the scripture today. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. If you've got a Bible, we're in Matthew 8. 
We're in this series talking about the kingdom of Jesus, and we're saying talk is, and there's a big blank there. It's the idea that the kingdom of Jesus is more than just talk. He gave this amazing sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. He stepped off the mountain, and then he started to show people why what he said actually made sense, why what he said actually is coming true right then and right there for us, right here and right now. And today we're in two different stories, and it all centers around this idea of, of control. I remember the first time I ever drove on ice. I was, I think, 16 years old, might have been 17, I forget. I was in high school. It was New Year's Eve, and I really wanted to go hang out with my friends. Really, really wanted to. But there's this ice storm in Dallas. And my parents said, you can't drive. And I said, you want to make a bet? I'm a great driver. I can drive. And they said, no, you really can't. It's really bad out there. And I said, I don't think you understand how talented I am in my six months of driving experience to own these roads. I can get in my Volvo 240DL 1988 because that's right, everybody, all right? And I can own the roads. And my dad, to his credit, said, show me. He said, drive around the block a couple times. If you still feel confident, then I'll let you go. And I said, got this. He just made a mistake. I'm about to win. Got in the car, backed out of the driveway, Started taking it around the block, and for the first time, again, I'd never driven in snow. I'm a Texas boy. I realized that when I wanted the car to do things in ice, it didn't do what I wanted it to. Oftentimes, it did the opposite. When you try and go, you don't. When you try and break, you don't, right? So I, I, remember, I remember the moment when I made it down the first street thinking, I'm not driving in this. I think I want my dad to drive home, <laughs> who grew up in Iowa. But I was an arrogant kid, so I was not about to tell him that. So I cool, calm, and collectedly drove home. And he said, do you want to go somewhere? I said, I think I, think I just want to hang out with my family. Love you guys. Let's ring in the new year together. It's going to be great, you know? It's that moment when you realize that you are no longer in control. And let me tell you something. That moment is frightening. I love this idea. It's a quote by an author, Max Lucado. He said that fear is a perceived loss of control. When we find things that we can't control, we then find fear. This week, everybody, come on. This week, and the things that we thought we could control, our houses and our thermometers and our electricity and our TVs and water, everybody, when it goes out, what we find first and foremost is that we fear the things that we can't control. This week has been an exercise in what we can't control. It's been an exercise in the things that maybe we fear. <laughs> We've always been afraid of Texas winters a little bit. And this year, I bet the next time there's a freeze warning in Texas, we're all going to take it a little bit more seriously than we did. And we always take it seriously. And so why I bring that up is because today we have two stories of people that really face things, two groups of people that face things that they absolutely could not control. And their responses to that are telling. So it's stories about when we come face to face with things we can't control and how that shapes us. What that does, what that says about us, and ultimately what that says about how we see Jesus. So we're going to go through two stories. We'll start in verse 23. Pretty popular story. I'll read the first bit. Jesus just got done teaching. And so he says, we're going to get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea. And so he says in verse 23, he got in the boat, his disciples followed him, and a great storm developed on the sea so that the waves began to swamp the boat. A couple things for context here. This is the Sea of Galilee. <coughs> and the Sea of Galilee was known for its all of the sudden pretty big storms. 
It's about 700 feet below sea level. So what would happen is you have these massive windstorms that would pop up over these mountains on the one side of it and cause these really big storms seemingly from out of nowhere. And these boats they were in were called a Gennesaret boat. They found it in that village in 1986. It was 27 feet long by 7 feet wide and about 4 feet deep. My point is simply that waves could come over the side. You had 13 or so men in this boat. And it says that as they went out, a great storm developed in the sea and the waves began to swamp or overcome the boat. Okay, that's the first thing. Two, you got to understand their perspective of water and that it's different than ours. In the first century world, and even in a lot of Jewish writings, water wasn't seen as fun. Water wasn't seen as something that you paid to have fun in. Hurricane Harbor didn't exist. We didn't have water for pleasure. It was something that could kill you whenever it wanted. Water was seen as terrifying. That's why they did baptisms like they do. You go into the water that symbolized death, because you know what I can't control? Water. It always wins. Think about it. That's why it's rock, paper, scissors, not rock, paper, scissors, water. Because rock and water, it wins. Look at the Grand Canyon. Paper and water, that's a no-brainer. Scissors and water over time rust, and it can't cut anything anymore. Water always wins. So in the first century world, they were afraid of water because they couldn't predict it, and it was more powerful than them. That's what's symbolized in baptism. You can even take it a step farther. And when you look at how, from a Jewish context, they describe what heaven's going to be in Revelation 21. So in Revelation 21, he's describing heaven. And he's saying, this is what heaven's going to look like. And he's saying, this is my version of what's best and good. So if I'm describing heaven, I'm saying heaven is a place where snakes no longer exist. First and foremost, that's where we begin, right? This is how the Jewish writers talk about it in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, because water was terrifying. So they get in this boat that can take on water. They're with their friends. The storm pops up, and they think they're going to die. They just have come face to face with that, which they can't control, that which inspires fear. And it's really interesting there about Matthew's words when he says, a great storm developed on the sea. That word used there for storm isn't normally what you'd use for a thunderstorm. It's the word that you'd use for an earthquake. And what Matthew's doing here in that context is literally he's tying some mystical um, um, correlations to the storm. He's literally tying like an influence of evil that caused the storm to happen in the first place. A lot of commentators would say he's literally saying the devil caused the storm to happen. That's why he's using this language. There's this idea in this text that something metaphysical is happening, causing the storm to happen in the first place. There's this major storm that pops up out of nowhere. Like the devil is opposing what Jesus is doing. Other things we can't control. And to understand that aspect, you have to understand in a Jewish context, they had an idea. It's biblical, by the way. They had an idea that at this time and place in the world, the world was, and the Bible says, is still controlled by Satan. It's under the influence of Satan. So when humanity fell, things broke. Things broke like my relationship with God. Things broke like my relationship with you guys. Things broke like my relationship with my pets and my animals that I was supposed to rule over. And ultimately, ultimately, the world broke. 
And, and it was given over to the influence, the thing that we were supposed to cultivate and reign and rule over in a good way. We gave that power over to Satan, and he reigns and rules over the world now. But here's the good news, spoiler alert, God's taking it back. And so when we talk about why we have these incidents in the world that are seemingly horrible, earthquakes and floods and freezes in Texas in February. It's because the world is fundamentally broken. The Bible gives credence to this when it says in 2 Corinthians that Satan is the god of this world, or John 12 when it says that he's the ruler of this world, or Ephesians 2 when it says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. It's this theology that the world is broken and under the influence of evil, and so evil things happen. And so they're on this boat, in this storm, in this water they can't control, and they think they're going to die. And so the text goes on. A great storm developed in the sea, and the waves began to swamp the boat, but Jesus was asleep. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture for a lot of reasons. One, I mean, it just shows the humanity of Jesus and maybe his stubbornness. I don't know. That's something we'll get into later. Two, I think I love this because it really juxtaposes the lack of faith of the disciples in the Jewish construct and even in a Greek one. If you could seemingly be steady in the middle of chaos, it meant that you believed what you believed well. It gave credence to what you said was true. And thirdly, I think what it does is it, it makes us realize that sometimes we undervalue the idea of sleep. So maybe when your teenager sleeps in till noon every Saturday, instead of saying, hey, you're lazy, you can say, hey, you have so much faith, you know? I think you are living out your faith well. Jesus in the middle of this storm that terrified all the disciples because they were faced with things they couldn't control is sleeping. And here's the big picture because he could control what the disciples couldn't. And so he was asleep, and they came in verse 25. They woke him up, and they said, Lord, save us. We're about to die. You've got to understand, too, the disciples, at least four of them, made their living on the sea. When they said they were about to die, they didn't mean it in some kind of hyperbolic statement. They'd been in storms before. I remember when I was in Africa a few years ago, there was this grown man who was 22 or 23 years old, and he'd never really been in the sea before, and we took him. And this dude is in ankle-deep water, and he's freaking out, yelling, I'm going to die, right? He was not going to die. He was in ankle-deep water. The difference is, these aren't men in ankle-deep water saying, I'm going to die because I don't know how to swim. These are grown men that made their living on the sea, and they're saying they're going to die. My point is simply, they really thought they were because the storm was really, really bad. So they go to Jesus, and they say, we're about to die. See, what's funny is, is when we come face to face with things we can't control and we realize it, we oftentimes reach out for what can control, we can't control in those moments. So this morning, my daughter is fiercely independent. Every morning when she wakes up, she crawls out of her crib and she packs a bag like she's going on a trip. She has her pillowcase and she starts stuffing in that her stuffies, like three or four of her stuffed animals, her water and her milk and a couple toys. And she walks out of her room with it over her shoulder like she's Tom Sawyer. And she comes out into the living room and says, hey guys, how are we doing today? Like literally this is what she does. So this morning she did the same thing. I'm watching on the monitor and, and she tries to come out of her room. And, and for the first time ever, Instead of turning the lock the way to open the door, she turned the lock the other way and locked herself in and didn't realize it. And so she couldn't get out of her room. And she starts yelling. And she starts yelling. And she yells, 
dad, 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 like with a different tone in her voice because she yelled for the one who could control what she couldn't. I said, that's right, I can. Never forget that, you know? <laughs> it's just in the moments where we find that we can't control what we thought, we reach out to the one we hopes can. And so they go to Jesus and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And he said to them, why are you cowardly, you people of little faith? When he says little faith there, by the way, it's a term he only really uses for his disciples in the Gospels. Some writers would say it, it's, it's a nickname like little faithers. Like, hey, hey, little faithers, so less shame and more. Guys, we've been through this before. You're my little faither, guys. He says, hey, you guys with little faith. He got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it was dead calm. And there's so much you could talk about there. I love, by the way, throughout the scriptures when God acts, you have these adverbial clauses that tell you the extent to which the power of God manifests itself. So when the Israelites cross the Red Sea, it doesn't say that they trounced through mud because it had been underwater for a thousand years. It says they crossed on dry land. Like, that's how God delivers. He doesn't just kind of halfway do it. If he's going to deliver, guess what? He's going to deliver. And so in this text, it doesn't say that the storms died down quite a bit, and it was still a little bit rocky. It says it went completely still. Think about that. It's an adverbial clause on the power of God to deliver. It's how our God works. And so it says that it went dead still. And again, Matthew bringing into this text this kind of mystical and, and this kind of um, spiritual dimension, that word when he says it, he told the storm to be quiet, is the same word we see when Jesus rebukes demons in exorcisms. So Matthew couches this whole idea in the framing or in the framework of there was this spiritual force that opposed and the storm popped up and Jesus said, get out of here, you have nothing to do with me. And he made it completely still. So the first story we see is one where the disciples are confronted with something they couldn't control and Jesus steps in and says, I can't. The second one is right after that. It starts in verse 28. They got to the other side, and it says, In the region of Gadneris, two demon-possessed men came to the tombs to meet them. They were extremely violent so that no one was able to pass by. So they get through this storm. They get to the other side, and they're going to be confronted with something else they can't control. Nobody could control, and that's demonic possession. We don't necessarily talk as much as probably we should about the mystical or as, about the demonic. In other expressions of our faith and other parts of the world that were raised differently than American individualism, they probably have more of a proclivity to see the world through the lenses of the mystical and not just the empirical. We don't. Because we don't like to talk about things that we can't prove or that we can't explain. Because if we can't prove or explain it, we can't control it. And hey guys, we don't like things we can't control. And so they get to the other side, and there's demonic things there. And you know how they knew they couldn't control the demonic things? Because it says they were extremely violent so that no one was able to pass by. They said, you guys stay over there. We're not going to go in your way or go about your way. We're going to walk on the other side because we don't know what to do with you. They kind of resigned themselves to giving up this space in their territory for these two demonic-possessed men. So nobody could pass by. Again, it's an example of things they couldn't control. So Jesus comes up to these men, and, and when he does, it says in verse 29, the two demons cried out, Son of God, leave us alone. Have you come here to torment us before the time? When it says there, Son of God, leave us alone, it's an idiom. 
And, and what it literally means is, what to us and to you? So Jesus approaches these demons. And they look at Jesus and says, hey, we're not bothering you. What are you doing here? They immediately recognize the power of Christ. And they say, guys, we're just doing our demon thing over here, not bothering you. Why are you here messing with us? We were not in your part of the world. You came to us. Why? You know? You guys seen those commercials where they take people and they say, you're becoming your parents? Have you seen those? I love these commercials. And they do things like, do we talk on the speakerphone in the middle of the store? No, we do not, right? Um, there's one where this guy like jumps into this other guy's conversation and, and tries to solve a problem. And he says, did he ask for your help? <laughs> no, no, he did not. That's what he's saying in this text. Like they didn't ask for your help. The demons are saying, what did we do to bring you here in the first place? We didn't do anything to bring you here. And, and what we see in this text is a couple things. One, the demons recognized right away that Christ controlled them and the people recognized right away that they couldn't control the demons. But two, what we see and recognize, and it's kind of a tangent to this story, but it's one that I love. It's an idea of what the gospel is, is that, that oftentimes what Jesus does is he steps into what we talked about at the beginning. He, he steps into the pain of others because light overcomes darkness the purpose of the kingdom isn't to wait for the pain of darkness to affect you. It's to find it and say that we have a better way. In a radically individual society that we live in, oftentimes we can retreat into our houses and pretend like there's nothing wrong with the world. But the kingdom asks us a different question. How can we not just be defensive about justice? How can we be offensive about the God's justice in our world? How can we bring healing to a hurting world? And then how can we just bring healing to the world when we hurt? This whole idea that Martin Luther King said so well when he said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Jesus steps into the pain of people he'd never met and says, let me bring healing where there's hurt. Why? Because that's what I came to do. Because that's the purpose of the gospel. It recognizes the brokenness of the world and says, but it's not going to stay this way. So you have these demons and they say, what are you doing here? So you're messing with me before the time. And when they said time there, really what he means is they understood that in the end Jesus wins, but they thought that was just in the end. And here, right here, we see this, this beautiful tension of, of the kingdom of God that we would talk about as already, but not yet. Like we live in this teenager time of God's kingdom, which is we see glimpses of their maturity, but then we see glimpses of them sleeping till noon, right? We see glimpses of the goodness of the kingdom of God in our everyday, but then we remember that the world is also broken. We see beautiful acts of humanity, and we also see horrible displays of atrocity. And we live in this time right here, right now, before Jesus takes control of the world again and bring things back together again. We, we live in this tension of already but not yet. Like the kingdom of God is here through the people of God, but it's not fully here yet. So the demons say, this is not the time yet. And Jesus says, I have come to essentially start my kingdom right here and right now. And they have this kind of standoff and Jesus wins. If you follow the next couple of verses, <coughs> it says the demons begged him, if you drive us out, send us into a herd of pigs. And he said, go. So they came and went into the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake and drowned in the water. If you want to look at who's controlling whom, look who's asking and who's giving direction. So they begged, literally begged Jesus, if you're going to cast us out, which you're going to, 
please let us go over there into something else. And Jesus says, sure, I'll let you. It's not that he didn't like pigs. This is Matthew writing. He's a Jewish writer. Matthew didn't like pigs. Jesus had nothing wrong with pigs. And what he's doing there is he's showing the destructive nature of the demonic. Jesus saves men and demons kill men and pigs. And so what he's doing is showing not only his control over the demonic, but he's also showing the betterness of his purpose over the purposes of the demonic or of Satan. So what we see in these two stories of control is pretty clearly that Jesus controls what we can't, but our response to Jesus shapes how we respond to what we can't control. You get two moments where Jesus saves people. Jesus saves a town from the demonic. Jesus saves a boat and his disciples. We had two moments, and how they respond to Jesus is really, really different. Let's look at the town. So it says the herdsmen ran off. They went into town. They told them everything that had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus. And at this point, you'd be thinking they're saying, thank you, I love this, we were so terrified, now we can walk down that road again, this is good. But they go out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Jesus does this amazing work that they couldn't do on their own, and instead of saying thank you, they say, please, please, leave as quickly as you possibly can. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. So I think the question that's being asked is, one, who's in control of what we can't? Again, Jesus. We all knew that probably walking in this morning that that was the Sunday school answer. I think the harder question is, do we trust what we can't control? Do we trust it? And you have two different responses from two different people. Do you trust what you can't control? And your answer to that question is going to shape how you respond in the middle of the chaos when life's out of control. A big player in my house this last week was Frozen because I'm in that life stage where I can't stop singing the songs in my head. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And in that, when they find out that this Elsa character has these powers, what do they do? They say, leave. They're terrified. They don't know how to deal with something that they can't control. They don't know how to deal with this person anymore. They don't know if she's trustworthy, and so she has these powers, and only one person actually trusts her, and so they run her out of her own kingdom because they can't trust that she'll use her powers for their good. They say, leave. If you don't trust what you can't control, then oftentimes what you do is you push away what you can't control because then you feel less afraid. But go back to the boat and the disciples. They were terrified and... They said, Lord, we're about to die, don't you care? And they calmed and stilled the storm, and they said in verse 27, the men were amazed and said, what sort of person is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Mark has the same story in his gospel in the fourth chapter, and he says it just a little differently. Instead of saying, what kind of man is this? He says, they were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, who is this then that even the winds and the seas obey him? Which you begin to see, in both these texts, is that they both feared what happened. They both feared Jesus in this moment because they realized that Jesus controlled what they can't, nature and the demonic. But the two different responses had everything to do with how they trusted what they couldn't control anymore. And the fear of the Lord in the scriptures is a really interesting construct. Because oftentimes when we think fear, <coughs> when we think fear, we think it's something that is cold, that is powerful, that we should run from. But when the scriptures talk about the fear of the Lord, it's something that is laden with intimacy. 
It's something that not only are you scared of, but you're not scared of for your harm. You're scared of because you recognize the bigness of what you're standing with. So it's used in a couple different ways in the scriptures, three particularly. One, it's used like you'd imagine, like, hey, if you don't get in shape, God will smite you. I'm afraid of a God that can own me, right? Two, I'm simply just afraid because of the position of God, like any kid would be afraid of their parents in some way because of the positional authority. And three is what you see in this text here, which is more of a fear of wonderment or awe. Like, I'm afraid of how big it is, but I can't help but be amazed at it at the same time. Space is a good example. I'm amazed at space. I'm terrified of space. We just landed a Mars rover on, well, I gave it away, Mars. And, um, <laughs> and I watched some of the video this week, and I, am, I can't stop watching, but at the same time, like, as I'm watching this, I am terrified as I'm watching these things. That some little green thing's going to pop up, you know? Um, I'm amazed at space. I'm terrified by space. I can hold these two things in the same place at the same time. So what we see when we talk about the fear of the Lord, what we see when we talk about fear in general, what we see when we talk about the things we can't control is it's not just about what we can't control. It's about do we trust what we can't control. And the disciples knew Jesus. They'd walked with him. They'd seen him heal. They'd heard him teach. They'd watched him be there for him. And so the different response they had to Jesus was telling because they knew who Jesus was and they trusted what they couldn't control. Because here's what fear does. Fear orders our life. It does. We reorder our life around fear, around what we can't control. I'll give you two examples. This morning, me driving in. Running a little late this morning because the kid woke up and locked herself in a room and laughed for a while. Then I got her out of it, you know? Um, And so I might have driven a little fast on the way here this morning because my fear of being late is greater than my fear of a speeding ticket, okay? But let me tell you something. If, if I had seen a cop on the road, I would have driven way slower because if it was actually going to give me a speeding ticket, my fear of the speeding ticket would have taken over being 10 minutes late this morning. Or if ICE had been on the road, I would have driven seven miles an hour the whole way here and said, Nick can get up here and teach. I'll get there when I get there, you know? I heard a story this week about, um, I, I don't know if you guys have any friends, I have a fixed rate energy plan, and I know that you don't think that's exciting until this week happened, and I read a story about this guy who had not a fixed rate plan, he was buying it straight from the provider, and if you read anything about energy this week, it went through the roof, and so normally that works out really well, and you pay less. This week it didn't. So there was this man in Dallas this week who had power all along, he never lost it, But literally he sat in his house with everything turned off, with no heat turned on, because he said, because of the energy prices, it's costing me $700 a day to heat my house. It's not worth it. His fear of the bill outweighed his fear of being cold. Fear orders our lives. I think what we see in these two stories is that rightly ordered fear brings peace because we know Jesus is in control of what we can't control. The question isn't, <laughs> what can you not control? That list is long. And the, and the older you get should only get longer, by the way. The question is, do you realize that Jesus is at the top of that org chart? And do you trust him? Because if those two things happen, if those two things happen, then even in the middle of the storm, we can have peace because we know who's ultimately in control. It's a lesson the disciples are learning. That's why Psalm 19 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it rests satisfied. I love that verse. 
If we find a foundational fear in God because he controls what we can't control and we ultimately know that he's good, then I have nothing to worry about even in the middle of things I can't control. One author said it like this, I worry because my vision of God is skewed. I rest when my vision of God is fixed. So here's the deal. When we talk about this text, this is not a text where I'm going to get up here and say, so God wants to still the storms of chaos in your life. <laughs> this is not a text where I'm going to get up here and say, God wants to cast out the demon of lust in your life or of overspending in your life or of fill in the blank in your life. This text is not about you directly. This text is about the majesty and the magnificence of Jesus. In this text, Matthew's simply saying, just to fill in the blanks on who Jesus is, he is a teacher, and he is a healer, and he's a compassionate man, but also he's in control of all the things that you're afraid of because you can't control those things. This is a text that magnifies the name of Jesus and says, whatever you're afraid of because you can't control it, understand Jesus is in control of that. So Matthew says, here's nature, and here's the mystical. That's what this text is all about. So the point and purpose of this text is to, to remind us that no matter what storm we're going through or how bad life is or how hard 2020 is, or I read an article yesterday that literally an airplane fell, like parts of it, on a house in Denver. Even if the literal sky is falling, what we need to remember is that Jesus is in control of what we can't control. And when that happens, when we recognize that and when we trust then what we can't control because it's Jesus... We can have peace in the middle of it, of the times when we're completely out of control. When we have no heat and we have no power and maybe we have no water because we know who is in control. It's a story about the Christology, about the bigness, about the godness of Jesus. It's a story that brings peace in the middle of everything else because of how magnificent and powerful Jesus is. So what that means for us, what that means for me this week as I think through all the unexpectedness that has come this year, as I think through all of what last week was and what next week will be, as I think through, sometimes I just need to reset my perspective and remember who Jesus is. I need to remember how powerful he is because it's so easy to forget. I need to remember how big he is because here's what I know. In the middle of the storm, when you feel like you've lost control, one of the first things to go is perspective. And we run to Jesus, who we just saw heal a bunch of people, and say, do you not care that we're going to die? Instead of, you fix some things. You want to take a go here? You know? The first thing to go is perspective. So maybe this week, maybe this week, all we do every day is remember how Jesus is bigger than our circumstances. We think through times in our life when he has been before, knowing that he will be again. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people made these altars throughout their land all over the place to remember when God delivered them because they would forget if they didn't. It says every time they walked by, they told their kids the story of when God did X, Y, and Z. This is Jericho. This is Goliath. This is fill in the blank here. He delivered us time and time again because he's bigger than our enemies and our giants and our foes and our weather and Satan, evil. He's bigger. So when we look at what this means... <laughs> It means that we remember that God is in control. And that is an active process, not a passive one. Because it's easy to forget. It means that we remember that we can have peace in the middle of the out of control because Jesus always is in control.
So write it down this week. Talk to a friend this week. Remember when God has delivered you. Because it feels like so many things are so out of control in this world. I need to be re-centered around who Christ is. Because ultimately, as a church, that's the story we're telling. That the world might be broken, and the world might have problems, and the world might not be better tomorrow. But when we sit in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the out of control, confidently in who God is, it tells the story of a God who's bigger than what's happening right here and now. It tells the story of the God who's putting the world back together. It tells the story of God who one day is fixing the brokenness and will rule and reign. It's what we do as a church. So we act differently in the middle of the storm than everybody else. Because if they don't know Jesus, they run away from. But we do. And we press in and we say we trust that which we can't control because what we can't control is Jesus, who's in control of all the other things. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis story, the Narnia ones, and... This girl is going to meet Aslan, who's a lion, you know? And she's going to meet Aslan, the lion, and he's the king, and she didn't realize he was a lion. And so she's talking to another character, and, and she said, I, I didn't realize he's a lion. Should I be scared? Is he safe? And her friend looks at her and said, says, of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think this story reminds us of who Jesus is that he's the king and he's in control. And he might not be safe, we might go through some storms, but he is good. And if we know that, we can have peace in the storm as well because Jesus is in control. Let me pray.